Greetings, it's Dave Zorko with Saturday Omaha, your connection to food, friendship, and the restaurant industry people that make it happen in Omaha and elsewhere. Brian O'Malley is the Associate Dean of Culinary, Hospitality, and Horticulture at Metropolitan Community College. And that's an important title. But what's more important is Brian O'Malley's heart and soul. You're in for a wonderful conversation that surrounds the program at MCC, but gets into what it means to really have a passion for food. Also, see if you can figure out where I may have got something in my eye and where I totally mess up the name of one of TJ's favorite pancakes. Seriously, though, this is a great conversation, so hang on to your fork, stay right where you are, and Saturday Omaha will be right back. Keep listening if you're hungry. You seem hungry. Good thing your table is ready with Saturday Omaha. Saturday Omaha. Eat this. I'll do some amazingly fancy professional intro, like, hey, this is Dave Zorko with Saturday Omaha, and I'm sitting in the palatial KIOS studios with Brian O'Malley of Metropolitan Community College, and I'm going to have you read off that title one more time in your voice so people can hear it and we can get it officially from you, sir. I am the Associate Dean for Culinary Arts, Hospitality, and Horticulture at Metropolitan Community College. My gosh, it, it does sound better coming out of your voice. You have you have a beautiful uh, voice for radio. Um, and, a face uh, for it, too. My mother would agree, though, that it sounds better coming out of my voice. So. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, first of all, I, I, I want to thank you for, for being here and taking time out of your day, as I am sure your day is very busy and packed with things. Um, and so, so thanks for being here. Um, and I was first introduced to your voice on your podcast, um, yes, and you had an absolutely lovely conversation with Chef Kevin Shin. I love him. Um, just I, I wow, uh, what what a guy! Um, and uh, now running uh, Portico, his his uh, in in home or or in backyard restaurant that he has. Um, but the dialogue that you both had around food and meaning and just all of those things was absolutely beautiful. And where I kind of wanted to connect with with you, especially with Metropolitan Community College, you've uh, the, the school has turned out wonderful chefs. Uh, I mean, uh, on the show, I don't know how many times Block 16 gets mentioned, Jess and Paul Urban, uh, you know, being in there. And then uh, I think, um, let's see, uh, Ben Maines too. Um, ben Maines is a student from MCC, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, so a uh, lot of awesome local chefs that have come through that program. But uh, in in your words, what what is happening at MCC? And uh, yeah, I, I I want to learn more and and have the listeners learn a bit about the program and what it's about and and how things occur. Uh, that's a, those are great questions, and I'll start with the conversation as I've had it with Kevin Shin, with Chef Shin, over the years. Is that when you seek to do this as a living, you, you have to connect to food in a way that uh, has different meaning than when you're cooking at home for your family mm-hmm. or your loved ones. That mm-hmm. you have to fall in love with the craft and the camaraderie. Uh, a little bit in the hustle. Yeah, uh, you, you've got to be up for the hard day's work for the sake of the hard day's work. And when those things 
kind of stitched together in yeah. any one place or over any stretch of time, you can really end up with something special. And I think the, the thing that happened so uh, magically uh, at the Institute for the Culinary Arts over the years is that college is a place where people ask you questions mm-hmm. about why you love something. And so somebody that shows up as a culinary student that says, I love cooking, mm-hmm. we don't accept that. Oh, we start with why. Why do you love it? Like it starts to be a struggle. Yeah. And so as much time as we spend perfecting hollandaise or learning 15 ways to cook rice, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we also ask them to reflect and consider why. Mm-hmm. And by starting there, and, and Kevin did this with his cooks uh, over the years at, at Bread and Cup. Bread and Cup, yeah. Better than anybody else I ever knew, or at least he was able to articulate it uh, better than anyone else I, had, anyone else I ever knew. But that's because he's a writer, like in his core, right, <laughs> that he tells stories. Yeah. Uh, I'll say as good as he does anything. That's not to insult his cooking, but to compliment his poetry. Excellent. Uh, but that piece of questioning the motive of why someone wants to do it really then shakes their footing in a way that that we're not when it comes to the cracking eggs and making omelets. Yeah. We're doing that by the book. But asking somebody to really consider why it is they love what they've decided to pursue helps them chase down their own reason. And that reason's different. And we can put them into some categories and say, ooh, look, there's these seven or eight things that – you know, are the same for people. But for everybody, it really is a unique story. And helping them find what theirs is helps them tell it in a way that then they grow in ways that we don't control. Like as teachers, as a school, we don't control it. Like our job really is to blow on the fire that's already (laughs) going, right? Not to light the fire, right? Somebody comes with it lit. Our job is to stoke it a little bit, and then hope the wind's blowing yeah. the other direction so uh, they can carry on with it. That's awesome. So, so when somebody comes to MCC and wants to pursue that, and you said, you know, you ask them if they just say, well, I, I just, I, I like to cook food. Like, mm-hmm. you're, you're looking for, well, there's the book Soul of a Chef, but you're looking for <laughs> that soul of a chef. How do you cultivate that throughout their education? I, I guess, is there a way that you advise or interact that uh, goes beyond following a recipe or, or you know, dicing something, that, that you're still maintaining that, that personal connection to the craft or, or that person's individual connection to mm-hmm. food throughout their education? Yeah, it's a, a great question. And one of the great challenges that faces us uh, as educators in the time that we have, we don't have them for very long with us. Yeah. In order to become great in anything, you're going to be a student your whole life. Right. But it becomes less formal and more personal as you move throughout your career. So our goal is to help build those tools that they'll then be able to be better at that the rest of their time, right? That they gain this reflective practice that becomes a critical component of the way they approach everything, the way they approach a new recipe, a new cuisine, a new teammate, that if they can foster this kind of reflective practice driven by, I'll say scientific inquiry, but I don't mean it in 
like the set up an experiment and run a test and right. evaluate the results uh, with any formality. But that is what happens. I mean, it's a reason a professional cook gets so much better, so much faster than a, a recreational cook, if that's the opposite of professional, uh, is that they get to do it a thousand times a day. Right. And so, yes, you might make uh, burgers in the backyard every Saturday. But over a lifetime, that won't equal one week at the Omaha Tap House for the grill. All right. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like that I, – I, I talk about it when people ask me about knives all the time, right? That uh, a, a recreational cook – and I, I mean that spirited with love. I don't mean that as right. uh, some derogatory statement as opposed to professional. Like somebody that pursues it for the pure joy of it and isn't getting paid to do it. Uh, that's a fantastic uh, craft uh, person yeah. as well. But a, a recreational cook says, oh, what kind of chef's knife do I need? And the answer is usually way cheaper than they were expecting because something that costs $150 is built to last a lifetime in a professional environment. Right. I mean, I have professional knives at home, but they don't get used – <laughs> nearly to the extent than they that they used to when they were the knives at work, right? Right. And I don't jockey my knife like I used to, so that's not <laughs> uh, a fair assertion to make about my knives at work either. <laughs> but uh, it's just the truth that uh, any pro in any craft is going to outstrip a, a amateur sure. reps so frequently, so right. quickly. If we can help them be reflecting on the value of those reps, well, now you got a flywheel, right? Now you've got all of this feedback yeah. that if you're being attentive to it, you can get so much better, so much faster, right? That right. I've probably smoked 10 briskets in my life, more than maybe the average person, but certainly not the amount that somebody that runs a smoker for their living right. does, right? So I know a little bit about it, but I don't know... Like I'm in the shallow end of that pool. Right. Somebody that does it for a living becomes expert so much faster if they reflect on the experiences. Right. I think uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Outliers, about uh, 10,000 hours or so to become an expert in something. And, you know, I maybe a, a simplistic example for me might be typing on a computer keyboard, right? Sure. And you start learning how to type and you're hunting and pecking and you're figuring mm -hmm. out where things are. And then over time, you're just naturally, you don't even think, you're just writing sentences because it's it's muscle memory or feel. And I could, I could totally see that translating to most crafts, but, you know, cooking over time where you said you're at the tap house, you've seen a uh, brown sugar burger, you've cooked it 800 times and you know by Tuesday right <laughs> right yeah, exactly exactly you know what it's supposed to look like you mm -hmm. you know what it's supposed to feel like you you know you you know when it's up probably when it's about to be done or when you need to fire it so it comes out at the same time as you know I don't know a burger that's twice as thick or something like that um so yeah I, I'll I say totally though the, 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 the difference between the 10,000 hours uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book is excellent but I, I think that that number is in the wrong currency Ooh. for a real attentive learner. I like this, yes. That I, I think that anybody can achieve expert level by just going at it yeah. long enough and not even being 
cognitively aware of the practice, mm -hmm. right? That if you simply shoot free throws two hours a day, uh, anybody can get better at anything yeah. just doing, but it takes 10,000 hours. I'm saying that the joy of deep reflective practice on purpose yeah. is that the great cut upwards of that growth curve happens in the first couple hundred. Yeah. Right? That you get way better at it with just a little bit of consideration. Now, I'm not saying that puts you on Carnegie Hall as a violin player or the free throw stripe in the NBA right. or, or, or. But with better guidance and personal reflection on how you're doing yeah. and an openness to that growth, that, that curve is fast. Like yeah. you, you, you reach that spot where you can get a lot better, a lot faster pretty early. In cooking, I think that's about setting down recipes and caring way more about ingredients and techniques. Right. That our, our program is built on the idea that you learn fundamental principles of cookery. The methods matter more than the outcome. Of course, the outcome matters too. We still got to sure. uh, serve these dishes at least to ourselves. But if you can work on the act of swirling the pan, mm -hmm. not the act of omelet making, right? That if you can give attention to the fundamental principle of omelet making centers around this swirl the pan idea, yeah. then you can practice that and practice that and practice that and practice that and not have used an egg yet. And then when you go to use an egg, well, now you're 100 omelets ahead right? without ever having to break an egg, right? The adage of you, in order to learn how to make an omelet, you got to break, break a few eggs. eggs, yeah. But the truth is you can learn a lot more about it before you break some eggs. Yeah. Now, whether or not you can keep people's attention without eating <laughs> omelets, that, that's a debate we're in all the time. But breaking things down to their fundamental principles and then practicing those uh, is really cool. And you get yeah. a lot better a lot faster. Hey everyone, are you enjoying the show so far? I hope so, because we're talking with Brian O'Malley, the Associate Dean of Culinary, Hospitality, and Horticulture at Metropolitan Community College. And I truly enjoyed talking and learning through our conversation. This was a meaningful evening for me, and I hope you enjoy more of our talk. If I can unpack a couple things there. One thing at the beginning, you, you had said scientific, but you said, but not scientific in the numbers way. And then as you were moving along, I think the word you used, and this is what came into my mind, was maybe purposeful. You know, maybe you're not, you know, graphing things down on paper, but you're paying attention mm -hmm. and, and putting purpose behind it. And I also wonder if there is a, uh, a heart multiplier. You know, even if we use the, the free throw example, which you and I both just, just admitted we don't have expertise in, but, you know, instead of just saying, yeah, I'm throwing these buckets here, um, instead I'm doing this with purpose because I want to learn how my shot is, or I want to learn how to use my knife to cut correctly or, or those things. So maybe that heart and that purpose change the unit, I think maybe you sure. said. So it's not ours. Maybe there's something else in there. So that's that purposeful um, heart-driven practice in your craft. Absolutely. Um, I, that's a great way to look at it. It's that I, I think the heart that you're talking about too is maybe the, the fuel that gets you through those reps that don't end in an omelet, mm. right? If you're motivated only by the eating mm. or the satisfying of someone else by producing something for them, you miss that chance sometimes for the deeper practice. And 
th- that's really what it takes, or at least I see people that can practice at that level mm-hmm. move forward uh, much quicker. Yeah, yeah. But I also see people coming to that level of practice, coming to that style of uh, deep practice later, right? That they've mm-hmm. made hundreds of omelets. And are starting to see that the swirl matters as much as other things. And they start to say, oh, how can I practice just that thing? And they start to isolate those uh, things that they need to give attention to. So much of our uh, industry got transferred from one person to the other without anybody being able to talk about it or write it down. Sure. I mean, if we think that cooking is one of the oldest things that we transferred from one person to the next, right? I mean – the knowledge base of cookery is really part of the fabric of being human. Right. And so it is wired into us to be able to be attentive to those things without somebody needing to write it down for us. And mm-hmm. when they do, I think most of the time it gets in the way that when you're trying to read along with your behavior, I mean, yeah. think about a guy on the free throw line trying to read the instructions. <laughs> About how to shoot a free now, throw. Now throw the ball. Yeah. <laughs> like it's it's ridiculous. Like right. imagine if basketball was a book like The Joy of Cooking, right? That they mm-hmm. handed you The Joy of Basketball and it was trying to tell you about dribbling. Like, I mean, like the English language uh, attempt at trying to describe that effectively yeah. uh, just wouldn't get there. And so going in and doing and, and dribbling poorly and shooting baskets wrong and burning eggs and all of that stuff is essential – uh, to getting better at it, but with a little more attention, you can get there. You can be attentive to the sound of the sizzle. And that's uh, one of the more recent cookbooks I read. David Chang's uh, new one, I think, is Cooking at Home. But I think there's one recipe, maybe two, in all of the pages because he sets it up at the beginning. And he's like, I want you not to follow a recipe. You know, I'm more interested that you are looking yeah. at things, tasting That's things, great. practicing things. I really liked your analogy there, too. It's like if you're in sports, you're not, you don't have the book in one hand and the ball in the other hand, and you're trying to – yeah, I, could, I can totally see that. Yeah. And you're just becoming more observant of your craft because you're not so focused on the text. Rather, you're focused on what's in front of you and how – you know, if you're making, I don't know, brown butter or clarified butter and, and the smell changes or the visually it changes mm-hmm. radically, uh, you know, as you're you're cooking it. And, you know, you do this and all of a sudden you, you had solid butter and, and now you have ghee. And then, <laughs> you know, quite a metamorphosis there in, in, in those products and, and really learning what to look for. And I suppose the other thing that maybe that helps you as well is every product that you deal with, even if you got you know, 90 cucumbers from your supplier or 50 steaks or whatever. Each one is probably a little different. Maybe the heat's a little different in the pan. Maybe the humidity's different that day. And so being able to adapt to that, I suppose, is, is quite an advanced and more intrinsically deep skill, I suppose, to make you better going forward. It has to be. I mean, the ability to adjust all the way through a service is critical. Now, we have a yeah. lot of incredible tools these days that can Uh, manage our craft with much more precision. It doesn't change that it's a full sensory experience. I I was just thinking about the sound of cream before it boils over. It starts to creep up the side of the pot very rapidly, and the sound of it changes. And if you're tuned to it enough, you can be off, you know, chopping the next thing, but you hear those first few bubbles, mm-hmm. and if you do it right, you can get back over there and 
stop it before it boils over. Now, that doesn't always happen, uh, and I boil over the pot plenty. <laughs> but it tells you, and it's the reason that it's disappointing, is that if you hear those first ones and don't react, you for sure hear the next. Right? Mm. Once it gets over uh, the sides and is sizzling in the, on the stove, everybody notices that one and goes, ah, I missed it. <laughs> Right, uh, And it's the sound of a mozzarella stick about to give up in the fryer <laughs> and a, a pot about to boil over. And, and, and like yeah. the sound matters, the smell of the butter going from brown to f- past, <laughs> the, uh, like all of those are there. It's taking the time to notice them that makes you good next time, yeah. right? And uh, that's a mindset that isn't always in the book. Tim Ferriss has a great book uh, called The 4-Hour Chef hmm. where he tries to talk about this uh, as well. And, and he's a learner really by craft, not a cook by craft. Yeah. Uh, and so his life is about how do you learn things. And so when he turned his attention t- uh, to the kitchen, it put us on notice that it's a way easier way to learn mm-hmm. to be attentive to the fundamental principles and then apply them in all the different situations. Like – It's kind of simple, but it turns everything upside down. I've been searching for a book on soup that doesn't break them up by end product, Mm. right? That you start reading and it's always then ends up as, oh, well, here's, you know, broth soups, cream soups, thickened soups, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Or it does it by region, right? Oh, here's Italian soups, here's Mm. whatever. But I want one that focuses on that it's built its flavor through extraction or Mm -hmm. reduction or uh, uh, addition of aromatics, right? That it's approaching it from the principles applied, not the resulting product. I truly hope you enjoyed the first half of the show because the second half is wonderful as well. We'll be back with Saturday Omaha and Brian O'Malley after these announcements. Hang on to your fork and stay hungry. Welcome back to Fatterday Omaha, Dave Zorko here, and on this episode, it's Food Recognized Food with Brian O'Malley. He's the Associate Dean of Culinary, Hospitality, and Horticulture at Metropolitan Community College. If you haven't fallen in love with cooking, you just might after this conversation. So let's get back to our talk. So as the, as the students uh, go through the program, have you had any instances where the student maybe was expecting to read a bunch of recipes and mm. you're, you're going and, and you're like, no, we're, we're approaching this from a different angle and observational with, with your senses approach rather than a clinical read the book and, and cook this mm-hmm. thing. I, I will say that both approaches still happen, right? I mean, it's, we don't run a recipe free program or anything like that, uh-huh. right? That uh, we're hoping that they're able to, to move through a recipe identifying and then leaning on those moments of sensory evaluation, Mm. right? So we're still saying, okay, we're going to go from here Mm -hmm. to pork schnitzel. Mm -hmm. Here's the principles we're applying along the way. So the recipe's still at the center of this in as much as a recipe is a collection of ingredients and procedures that move you from there to lunch, right? (laughs) Uh, So it it does always happen. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'll, I'll say that there's, two populations that it happens very differently for. So in our non-credit professional development 
courses, right, where anybody from the community comes uh, and learns about Indian cuisine or knife skills or fundamentals of fish cookery, that they get one night, and at the end of it, they can't see that they've learned a principle that's applicable everywhere. Mm. They still, at the end, say, well, we need to write down the recipe again for the whatever it was. And that's fine, and we do that. They, they walk with that. But some students in those classes get to the end and say, I could do this with any fish. Mm, mm-hmm. Wait a minute, I could flour and pan fry and clarified butter any product, yeah. not just fish. Wait a minute, it doesn't have to be butter. It could be, oh, wait a aha, oh no, pouring it over the, like that they start, it starts it to clicks. show them. Right. Yeah. And that moment changes the game for everybody, that you're no longer saying, ooh, in order for me to know how to get from pile of ingredients to pork schnitzel, I need step-by-step driving instructions, you kind of go, oh, fry, all right. And then you start going. And that then is the moment that it really feels like the world opened up. Yeah. You you now can do anything. You may not do it well, uh, but the level of courage goes through the roof. Uh, Julia Child talks about it a lot in her book that she's in Mastering the Art of French Cooking, that she's writing this compendium, this cataloging of here are these great classical dishes of uh, French cookery, but she's trying to balance it with, wait a minute, if you learn these principles, that's what will guide you then, no matter what cut of meat you're uh, faced with. And I think she does a a very fine job of it. I think most of of us get distracted by the recipes uh, when we first crack open books like that, but. That makes sense. I, I, I suppose you still want that pork schnitzel to show up if you're cooking at home and you <laughs> you told the family we're having pork schnitzel. Right. <laughs> right. Wait a minute. We ended up with chicken nuggets. How did that happen? Yeah. I, I don't know. What uh, you know, I think that uh, consistency, I, this is not my uh, line. I, it's adapted from what I heard from a National Restaurant Association packet 30 years ago, <laughs> uh, is that uh, consistency is the enemy of quality. Mm. And that blew me away. Like, I didn't think that was a perspective. I it's thought it was... Counterintuitive. It is almost. a little bit. Yeah. And they see that if your goal is consistency, not quality, then what you'll do is make all of your decisions in order to make it be the same all of the time. Mm. And so you may have consistency, but you'll never have those peaks. You might also avoid some valleys. But the truth is, if you're applying as a craftsperson seeking that heightened excellence, mm-hmm. and then your valleys are usually still above the level at which it could always be the same. Yeah. Sometimes not. I mean, my family will uh, happily talk to you about the moments <laughs> where I make things that, that fall uh, below that line. But uh, I don't know. Those are risks that are essential. Yeah. I mean, hopefully nobody dies uh, in those uh, failures, uh, right? We're not trying to get to the moon. Right. We're just trying to get to dinner, and sometimes you end up eating toast. Like, it's all right. It's all right. I've, I mean, I've had some pretty good bread, so that's, that's okay sometimes too. I'm a fan. Having heard your voice during this conversation and before this conversation, there's obviously a lot of your passion and love for food that comes out. So, Brian O'Malley, how did you develop your love and passion of food? Hmm. 
That's a good question. Slowly, uh, and I would say kind of one big tenant at a time, that I first fell in love with the crew and the money. Mm. I didn't first fall in love with the food, mm-hmm. right? I fell in love. I started working at 13, 14 years old, and I loved the other dudes I worked with. Yeah. And then at 14, I had $100. Right. right? Big was, money then, right? sure. Amazing. Um, and so I thought, wow, this is sweet. I, I want to keep doing this. But then uh, the next piece that I really loved was uh, anticipating what people wanted and being able to provide it for them, right? So I was mm. in, on the service side of the house yeah. uh, in those days. And little things like uh, clearing somebody's plate before they did, moving, holding their chair back for them as they started to stand up, right? That they'd go to get up and you'd get there in that moment that you could assist and that they would feel grateful yeah. for that action that I could take. I fell in love with that feeling that I could notice and then provide for somebody else. I loved that piece of it. Mm-hmm. But then I started eating uh, with some vigor and <laughs> really fell in love with the outcome of it, right? The discovery of unique flavors and, and components and ingredients that I'd never experienced. I, I, I say it a lot that there's no bottom in our field, right? That there's no moment at which, all right, I've got it all. I figured out all the dishes. Right. Right? Nobody's <laughs> ever even tried to say that, right? Uh, Mark Bittman has a book, How to Cook Everything. He's kind of <laughs> trying to say that, I guess. But, uh, uh, even uh, Auguste Escoffier, who's this absolutely lauded, revered chef. Literally wrote the book on French cooking. Literally yeah. wrote the book uh, <laughs> on it. And in sentence one of the introduction says, this book will be out of date the moment it goes to print. That's pretty forward thinking. <laughs> right? And that, the idea that there's no way you can know it all also makes it incredibly safe to not know very much. <laughs> True. Right? And so it all of a sudden became this way to just, mm-hmm. just get good at your one little thing. Yeah. And that then could feel like you could grow in that. And I love that safety. Mm-hmm. And forever excitement. And the balance of those two was really exciting to me. Yeah. Really exciting to me. That's awesome. Well, in between service and hospitality and in the kitchen too, there's you're you're creating art. You're creating something from your your palette of ingredients. You're putting them together. You're making something that is is more than the sum of its parts. The act of applying then heat or uh, cold or, or whatever technique that you're using, then transforming things and, and producing this. So you have so many different rewarding aspects, whether that's the smile on the person's face, the fact that you created something, um, and all of those things together, it's quite a unique arrangement of feelings and things in the physical world and, mm-hmm. and, and satisfaction in, in different ways and even just smelling a delicious dish when it's when it's done is you know it's can be its own reward absolutely it is and those things we don't have the language for right that the greatest compliment is not a well-written blog post or uh anything like that it's somebody overcome with the mm, Mm -hmm. of it yeah and 
it's ephemeral, right? It flits away immediately, right? At the next bite or at the next drink or at the next piece of conversation that captures their attention away from uh, the consumption. So to be satisfied by that is incredible, but it's also very little, right? It's a Mm. small little moment uh, that escapes right away. And so you got to have a few other things that that, uh, fill you up. And getting through a night of work with four or five other people on the line or the rest of the crew in the dining room, that really was satisfying to me. That's present in lots and lots of fields. But there's a special little confluence between that and the craft and the immediate intersection with the guest Mm -hmm. and the no bottom of the amount of stuff that you get to continue to try to practice. So Bistro Sage opens here in a couple of weeks. Nice. I proofread the menu from the chef instructor in there today. I bet I learned 10 things. I mean, some of it was dumb. Does Jeweled have one L or two, right? Regular proofread <laughs> stuff. Sure. Uh, but some of it was like, huh, I didn't know that cheese was from Belgium. Wow, how does it play together? And so it's this whole new path of discovery five minutes before I drove down here. And it, that's spectacular. Like, yeah. I'm proofing it. Like, he's like, hey, see if I, you know, if it, you know misspelled Diabla or something. But I, I love still learning new things. And... I've been in this game a long time, and I love that I still feel pretty dumb most of the time. Uh, that's a fabulous feeling. Yeah. A fabulous feeling. The more you learn, there's probably you learn that there's more that you don't know as well, you know, introduced to a new type of cuisine or mm-hmm. a spice you've never seen or, you know, something along those lines. And uh, I had a chef one time, uh, I, it was when I was working at the country club. I, was, I worked at Champions Club for a long time when I was uh, younger. Uh, you know, we'd go through a menu meeting, and I would just be gobsmacked, right? She knew all the stuff I didn't know anything about. And then she'd finish the meeting with saying, and then there's Indian, <laughs> right? Meaning, like, yeah. here's all this stuff, and we're all geeking out about it and learning all we can from her. And she's saying, I don't know anything about Indian. Yeah. Like, if we really want to get crazy, guys, let's go into this world that I don't know anything about either. And it's the truth. I still don't know very much about Indian. I mean, I like to go eat it. Sure. But it's always exciting uh, on that front, that there's just a whole new pantry, a whole new set of techniques and ingredients, uh, a whole new set of uh, hardware, right? The way the stove works or the pans they've got, or, or it's all new every, every time you turn the corner. And uh, that's really exciting. Sometimes you got to look back in history to find those new things because we're homogenizing a little bit sure. uh, around the world. But uh, India is still pretty different. I'm excited about learning more about that. Someday. Oh, yeah. And even just the differences in India, you know, regionally, you know, you've got biryani and then it's different from region to region to region. And, mm-hmm. and you know, one is different and, you know, all the different spices and, and combinations of spices and, and all of those things. And, yeah, just amazing. Um, amazing. You know. And everything grew up on its own time. Right. I mean, the same way all of the pieces of our culture grow uh, uniquely in their location with the people that are carrying them forward, right? That uh, the Chinese cultivated rice, uh, domesticated rice uh, for the first time, maybe independently, maybe India did it too, but then maybe 10,000 years later, it happened totally independently again in South America. Sure. Like, I, I don't know. Those things are just like they touch every fabric of who I am as a student 
uh, and what I love to kind of get into. And I think that, as people can discover that there's all of those little things in food, that you can be full-tilt scientist, super hardcore craftsperson, entirely dedicated to service, uh, total science junkie that just wants to measure and reflect. and Like, you can do all of those. Just one, all of them together, little pieces. Uh, it's such a broad uh, field. I mean, it's literally the fabric of what we're made of. Right. Uh, that you can do everything. I mean, chase it down on the nutrition side. Like, how does what we eat impact who we are as people physiologically? And each of those the start of that path gets better at school mm -hmm. with purposeful, guided, reflective practice. And then you keep moving forward. And then you grow like crazy uh, on the other side of that once you start getting the reps. Hey, everyone. We're talking with Brian O'Malley, the Associate Dean of Culinary, Hospitality, and Horticulture at Metropolitan Community College. And I hope you enjoy more of our talk. Um, you know, mentioning, you know, nutritional content, you, you literally are what you eat. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't survive without it. One of the things that I've, you know, that I enjoy about food in this show is everybody's got to eat. Um, and you had mentioned the, the service side too, which is always, that is one of the things doing this that I have learned more and more about is the heart and soul, not only for the food, but just to put a smile on somebody's face, but you're mentioning, um, you know, somebody getting up and you're, you're holding that chair. You have taken a millisecond or two and you have already made that experience just a little bit more special for somebody. Boy, that though that memory of that meal can carry with you. And especially if it's uh, a special event, um, I, I remember the last, uh, steak meal that, uh, at least that I recall that I got a chance to eat with my mother. Um, it was a birthday lunch actually at Upstream West, which is no longer there. And it was a, uh, spicy chili crusted ribeye, if I recall, and I can almost still see it. I think I can still probably taste it a little bit. And I remember, you know, having a wonderful lunch with my mom and, you know, those are, all things connected through and around food. And it's just such a I wonder if there's somebody that's studying just that. The memory of the lunch with your mom is the steak helping set that marker for the memory, or do they both like run together? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think that that's critical. I mean, I, I know that I certainly remember some meals that by their quality don't deserve it. Uh-huh. But by the events surrounding it, uh, they certainly have a uh, heightened spot in my memory, some of them even in my evaluation of their quality, right? That I remember mm -hmm. some meals much better than they could have could been, have been objectively. Ab absolutely. I think about some super meaningful meals I've had. And were they meaningful because the meal was amazing or because the moment was amazing and the meal was or maybe both. Yeah, maybe I, both. I've, I've used the phrase nostalgia sauce before, which is a very potent sauce. Uh, can possibly exceed hunger sauce. That's also a very, very good one. Um, we but, hunger for nostalgia. Yes. And so, yes, it's both. It's combined. And, and I wonder that because, you know, if, if you want to start a good, uh, possibly fiery debate in Omaha, start talking pizza or barbecue. And, yes. uh, you know, well, it's, you know, it's, it's always better in Kansas City. 
is it maybe, or is it that you had a good experience there and you know, that's one of those things or pizza. You, you need know, to have me back things. just for the barbecue conversation. <laughs> we we could go for a while. I, I think having that spirited conversation as a piece of public discourse related to something like this, yeah. that is important, right? That, and perhaps helps us be better at the rest of public discourse as well mm-hmm. is valuable. Like to get three people on that want to talk pizza or barbecue or whatever. We just put this class together. I don't, I don't know if it's going to go or not, but it was a pitch that we made uh, to a local company that wanted a, a professional development experience with us, but they didn't have the time to do or the money to do some of the things that we've built. We've got some really mm-hmm. cool uh, professional development experiences where you can come learn uh, how to kind of manage your grit like a chef or engage uh, ambiguity like a chef or, or, or these guys wanted kind of a Omaha-driven experience. So we're going to do kind of uh, pub crawl for pizza. Oh, cool. But in-house. Oh. Right, so we'll go get 15 different pizzas from around the city, uh-huh. finish their firing at school, uh-huh. and then send it out in flights between – you know, Godfathers and Valentinos and La Casa and Big Freds and Orsi's and Virtue and, 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 and. Yeah. And so it's just about discovering and some conversation about, you know, what do you see as your preference for pizza? Uh, because it's people that they have that are coming in from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so now they're moving here from San Francisco and they want something that feels comfortable. Mm-hmm. Let's see what that is. Right. Right? Yeah. It's going to be fun. Yeah. And 35 then, bucks, 15 pizzas, and like guided tasting. I know. I'd sign up for that <laughs> I think we could That sounds it. wonderful. I just made our kind of coordinator mad that I mentioned this because now <laughs> we're probably going to get uh, some people wanting to do it. But why not? Like it's going to be a blast. That's going to be a blast. That sounds awesome. Well, and, you know, we, we had brought up uh, Chef Kevin Shin's name earlier mm-hmm. in the show. And I, I had him on the Saturday Omaha show. And uh, he – was talking to him about uh, uh, giving feedback to to restaurants on the food. And he had said something that just stuck with me still here, and that's when you look at food, uh, is it a preparation criticism or your preference? And big difference. And when we're talking about pizza, well, maybe this pizza is a little different than the one you had because that's your, your preference. But was this necessarily cooked incorrectly? No, it was cooked dead on, Mm -hmm. but maybe you don't like your sauce on top of your cheese. And, and that's just, you know, not how you like it. That's a preference thing. So, um, yeah, the, the study of pizza, I think (laughs) with, I don't know who wouldn't sign up for that. That sounds fantastic. Well, Um, usually uh, most arguments start with trying to convince people that your preference is superior. mm -hmm. Certainly we do that in politics, (laughs) but in, in pizza, if we can start to see Ooh, if we go to describe before define or describe before judge, mm-hmm. right, that uh, to Kevin's language, right, that let's talk about the preparation rather than our preference. Yeah. Right, that don't start with, ooh, I like it or it's nice or it's good or whatever. Start with it's crisp, it's hot, it's soft, it's chewy. Mm-hmm. It's, right, you start with the words that describe what it is. Mm-hmm. Oh, how you feel about those things doesn't need to weigh into the conversation for a while. Yeah. Right? That to 
describe Valentino's and to describe La Casa are going to be two very, very different yes. descriptions. What you like in that is something we got to suck out of the discourse before we've discovered what Valentino's is and what La Casa is. Yeah. And I think that makes us better at everything that we engage, not just food, that we start to worry about what it is before we say, I hate that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, even a, a Valentino's versus La Casa, if you smell Romano versus, you know, uh, the big Mott's pizza, that's a totally different sensory experience. Very. And like you said, texturally, those two pizzas are way on the other end of, of the totally. scale, too. So, totally. Yeah. And both have their own their own merits in their own way. I can't tell you that I don't love both of them. Right. I love them both. Right. Right. I mean, there are moments that are connected to each that elevate them in my own taste memory, mm-hmm. right? Between dinner with grandma and the fam at La Casa or Nebraska football games with Valentino's, yeah. right? Uh, and so both of those things elevate them for me, but the just straight objective evaluation of what they are doesn't mean I decide whether I like one or the other differently. Uh, they're unique things. Yes. Yeah. And I love it. I, I love approaching food in that way. And I really love helping other people see that they can approach food that way because it changes uh, their preferences. Yeah. Right? That they don't say, no, I don't like that. They say, hmm, I didn't know beets were so soft. I didn't know they had such a mineral flavor. I didn't mm. know. I didn't know. I didn't know. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as you become familiar, you know, with more ingredients or different preparations or, you know, maybe you've had an egg this way, but not that way. Or you've had a pancake, but have you had a crepe? Have you had a Dutch bunny? My apologies to you, the audience, and my co-host TJ for saying Dutch bunny. It's Dutch baby. I was driving home after this talk and I was like, oh, no. And I said it and I'll... Anyway, sorry, everyone. Dutch baby. Dutch baby. Uh, back to our conversation with Brian O'Malley. Or you're, you know, like you're talking Indian cuisine. Um, you know, that's one of those things when I first started eating Indian cuisine that I wasn't familiar with it. My palate did not understand what was coming at it until I probably had it three, maybe four times. And sure. I'm like, Okay, and, and granted, that's in my very narrow slice mm-hmm. of Indian food that I've had, um, you know, talking regionally and, and whatnot. But, um, you know, and for me, once my palate started to get more familiar with, well, maybe that's just it, more familiar. And that familiarity comes back when next time I'm going to try a brand new Indian restaurant, I'm going to pick something here. But I, I've got kind of an idea what's coming at me um and you 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 get those flavors that you you might be expecting or some of those um just just neat experiences as as your eyes open up to what else is is available out there and we're so blessed in omaha Mm -hmm. to have such a cacophony of choices yeah right that we've got so many amazing things for a city of our size in the midwest united states you re- I mean, Hip Bow has been on my list of places I need to get back to lately. Oh, yeah, right off 84th and oh, Center there. I love it so much. And I love it because it introduced me to a world I didn't know. Yeah. And so I got to do it again and again and again. And 
then I get to take my kids there and they get to go, oh, right. There's so many neat places like that around every other corner. Yeah. And sure, this isn't New York City. It's not London. It's not uh, Mumbai. But uh, we are lucky to have the uh, kind of folks we have in our field putting it out every day uh, to get better. And it's awesome. Absolutely. I, I want to remember the name of the place, uh, Ono Pane. Oh, yeah, down have in, in down Bellevue, there? the Bellevue? Uh, Hawaiian and Filipino cuisine. Man, again, I just went uh, for the first time not too long ago. They, nice. they brought a soup to uh, Art and Soup, a, a fundraiser that I'm a part of. Uh, it's a great event that supports the VNA. Um, but so I, I was taking them their trophy, and I was like, well, if I'm going to drive all the way down there, uh, I, I'm going to, you know, make it uh, so I can have lunch. I went yeah. down with a colleague, and we sat for an hour. We went through their buffet. They have a lunch buffet. We went through like four times, eating all the – it was crazy. It was wonderful, though. And, I mean, what a great place. Like somebody just in love with their food, yes. trying to share it with the world. Hidden gem. Hidden gem. Hidden gem. Yeah, the uh, the, the pancit uh, and the lumpia that they offer and everything. And you can just live on that. And you can just have a whole plate of them. I'm right. Like, Are you crazy? You're yes. just going to let me have 10? Yes. Yeah. Yes. They're, they're wonderful. And, and you bring up such a good point about the, the Omaha culinary landscape is, you know, we have Hawaiian. We have Thai. We have Ethiopian. We have... Omaha party cut style hamburger and onion pizza. Heck yes. um, you know, we we have such a variety available here. Sometimes you got to know where to look. Um, that's one of those things with this show. I hope that people hear about mm-hmm. these places and then they go try them. Um, and I think it's so nice that that you and, and uh, Metropolitan, uh, you know, Culinary College um, um, are providing chefs and people that – quite often stay here. Uh, you know, we were talking right before the show about Jess and Paul Urban from Block 16 yeah. or uh, Benny Maids from Acarant or, you know, we've we've got people that are bringing different types of food here or just people, you know, like like you said, that love the food, see a need for it. Um, I was just talking to uh, Chloe Tran of uh, Bon Mi Shop down in Bellevue. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like, there's no Bon Mi. You know, there's not a Bon Mi Shop here. You know, I, I, I'm going to create this and do this. And it's just... It's just so neat that if you know where to find it or you look a little bit, you can probably find what you're looking for for the most part. So that's awesome. And I think that we have uh, a uniquely adventurous spirit mm. for how, like, conservative our palates really are. It's mm. a very unique balance. Mm-hmm. But I think it's to be celebrated that – a place like the Bon Mi Shop or Ono Pane or Okra or oh, yeah. or, or uh, while they appeal to a specific demographic that might be looking for jollof rice, uh-huh. they survive because there's enough people that are willing to go, go, what's jollof rice? Right. right. They're not looking for it. They're willing to discover it. Right. And that balance is so cool. One that I didn't think was as vibrant as a kid. Like, I, mm, I, mm-hmm. I don't know, I beat up the Midwestern palate uh, as a young cook, right? Thinking, oh, no, it's just steak and potatoes. And it's it's not. And I, I quite frankly think it never has been. Mm-hmm. I mean that, I don't know, I dorked out last year and read a book about Willa Cather's food writing. And I think about the pioneer spirit that is the fabric of who we are in this part of the country. Mm-hmm. That 
they couldn't show up and try to do what they had. They had to be willing to say, hmm, let's discover. Right. Let's try new. And I think that's permeated the whole way. Yeah. Not that steak isn't dominant and people don't love it, but uh, I, I don't think we're as, I don't know, pedestrian, is that the right word, as some people bust on us for. I think we don't always have all the opportunities to experience, mm. experiment, test, grow, change, whatever, but I don't know. I, I think people are more adventurous than we give them credit for. I, I would agree. And, uh, we, you know, that's, I, I think over the last five or 10 years, uh, the, the restaurant scene here has grown so much in variety and things that we can get. And, uh, our, uh, our palate is getting stronger and more diverse and it's, it's a beautiful thing, Absolutely, you know? So, well, Brian O'Malley, I could talk to you for another forever. Uh, so I well, think we wait a year. Nobody will remember. We'll do it again. <laughs> we'll do it again. Um, but thank you so much for for taking your time out. If people are interested in MCC or eating at Sage uh, Bistro, what's the best way to to connect uh, with you and the program and, and the bistro and all these things if they want to find out more? Absolutely. So the uh, MCC website, mccneb.edu. Uh, and then, uh, you know, follow your nose from there. But if you just do front slash sage or front slash culinary, that, that'll get you uh, to all our stuff. I mean, you can go to the, the Googler and say sage student bistro. That'll get you in. Uh, we run an incredible amount of uh, stuff between our open kitchen programs, the student focused bistro, uh, our credit coursework. Uh, we, we got a lot of stuff happening up there. So there's something for almost anybody. Uh, whether you're eight or uh, 68, you, you can find something to participate in with us that'll advance, uh, you know, what we all know about food. Perfect, perfect. Well, uh, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, um, I always uh, anticipate, uh, you know, I, I love the dialogue that I get to have on this show. And you truly delivered on the uh, not only the information, but the, the heart and the soul that we like to communicate out there um, on the program. So, Brian O'Malley, thank you so much for your time here at Saturday Omaha. My honor to be here with you. Wonderful. Thank you. And until we eat again, stay hungry. Bye. Our show is recorded and produced by Saturday Omaha. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as well as email FatterdayOmaha at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and stay hungry.